Welcome to the Consumer Finance Podcast. I'm Chris Willis, the co-leader of Troutman Pepper's Consumer Financial Services Regulatory Practice. And I'm glad you've joined us today because we're going to be talking about the FTC's new auto dealer rule and especially its potential impact on auto finance companies. But before we jump into that topic, let me remind you to visit and subscribe to our blogs, TroutmanPepperFinancialServices.com and ConsumerFinancialServicesLawMonitor.com. And don't forget about our other great podcasts. We have the FCRA Focus, all about credit reporting, the Crypto Exchange, about all things crypto, Unauthorized Access, which is our privacy and data security podcast, and our newest podcast, Payments Pros, which is all about the payments industry. All of those podcasts are available on all the popular podcast platforms. And speaking of those platforms, if you like this podcast, let us know. Leave us a review on your podcast platform of choice and let us know how we're doing. And if you like reading and listening to our thought leadership content, check out our handy mobile app. It's available for both iOS and Android, and it provides a one-stop shop to read all of our blogs, all of our alerts, listen to all of our podcasts all in one place, and it even has a handy directory of our financial services lawyers and a calendar that shows you what conferences we'll be attending and speaking at. So check it out. Just look for Troutman Pepper in your app store. Now, as I said, today we're going to be talking about the FTC's recently finalized auto dealer rule. And joining me today to talk about that are two of my partners who do lots and lots of work in the auto finance space, Alan Wingfield and Brooke Conkle. Alan and Brooke, thank you so much for being on the podcast today. Thanks for having us, Chris. And I guess probably before we jump into actually talking about what the rule actually requires, maybe the $64,000 question that the listeners will be most interested in, at least at the front, is to hear like what the status of the rule is. Because the FTC finalized the rule and set a relatively short implementation period. Compliance was going to be mandatory in July 2024. But then almost immediately, the National Auto Dealers Association and the Texas Auto Dealers Association filed a petition in the U.S. Court of Appeals for the Fifth Circuit challenging the rule. And the FTC shortly thereafter announced that the implementation and compliance date of the rule would be stayed until the court challenge to the rule had been adjudicated. So the Fifth Circuit has set a briefing schedule and has said that it's going to expedite its review, but we don't know exactly when the rule is going to come into play or what the fate of the rule will be. Now, we can, of course, share with the audience the basic arguments that the dealer associations made in that petition, and I'll do that now, but then we should talk about you know what are the practical implications of this while we're in this holding period. So the filings made by the dealer associations in the Fifth Circuit challenge the rule on a couple of grounds. First, they assert that the rule is procedurally flawed because the FTC has a regulation that requires it, if it's going to enact a trade regulation, which this is, to first publish an advance notice of proposed rulemaking rather than jumping straight to a notice of proposed rulemaking, which is what the FTC did in this instance. And the dealer associations assert that the failure to follow that procedure renders the rule procedurally invalid and therefore cannot be implemented. On the merits, the dealer associations generally argue that there is no evidence of widespread problems among auto dealers relating to the subject matter of the regulation and that the FTC's so-called evidence consists only of a handful of scattered enforcement actions and a small number of consumer complaints. But when weighed against the very large number of vehicle purchase transactions that occur across the country every year, it doesn't point to anything but you know very anecdotal, occasional problem that's not widespread in the industry at all. 
And so the dealer associations assert that compliance with the rule will be expensive for and harmful to dealers, even though they're not engaged in any misconduct, and therefore that the FTC was arbitrary and capricious in determining that the rule was required and that the benefits of the rule outweigh the costs. So that's sort of a sketch of the arguments that I think we're going to see litigated in the Fifth Circuit. And as I said, the rule has been stayed by the FTC pending the outcome of that challenge. So Alan Brook, I'd really be interested, and I know the audience will be interested too, in your thoughts. You know, we have a rule, but it's stayed at the moment. We don't know how long it'll be stayed because we don't know when the Fifth Circuit will decide this case and if or whether anybody will go to the Supreme Court on it or if the Supreme Court would take the case. So from a practical standpoint, what would we say are the action items? Should the industry just wait and see, or is there some action that we think that should be taking? Thank you, Chris, and thank you for having me on the podcast with Brooke. We've been giving some hard thought to the quandary presented by the status of the rule, and I think I keep coming back to what would the FTC do if the rule survives in whole and in part the legal challenge? And I think we cannot discount the possibility that the FTC will move quickly and aggressively to a short compliance state in that scenario. Uh, given that, I feel like the minimum approach to the rule would include dealers and finance companies having in place essentially a strong, comprehensive plan to deal with the rule if it survives the legal challenges. Think of it as break the glass and grab on emergency. As we'll get into in a podcast, these rules have many facets and many trickle-down implications through the documentation and compliance systems for dealers and hence for finance companies. And it may be too much of a challenge to deal with all those complexities on a short notice and emergency manner. And therefore, pre-planning and knowing what you might do seems prudent in my view. Makes a lot of sense. So, and I think, you know, Brooke, you've been thinking a lot about this too. First glance, you might say, well, the rule is fairly short and simple. So having to comply with it isn't like that big of a deal. But I think as you've started to think about it with clients, you've reached the opposite conclusion. Could you share a little bit of that with us? Certainly. What's sort of complicated about this rule, frankly, is its brevity, but also so many of the kind of inner workings of this rule is all sort of interconnected. So there are prohibitions that then lead to requirements and requirements that then lead to prohibitions. So you have a lot of new tasks that dealers will be tasked with, sort of both in the advertising process and at the point of sale. And then finally, in the record-keeping process, the rule has a requirement that certain disclosures and certain marketing representations must be retained for 24 months. And that kind of sounds simple when you, you know, put it down in a rule, but the requirement really goes back to numerous instances of communications between consumers and the dealer. So from that first sort of outreach of the consumer where, you know, a consumer reaches out to the dealer and says, hey, I'm interested in this car that you have. That first interaction is supposed to lead to a disclosure of an offering price in writing if the communication is in writing. And that disclosure also triggers a record keeping requirement. So you have this one instance, which is sort of, you know, expected in the dealer industry that a consumer wants to purchase a car, wants to know how much that car costs. And suddenly that one interaction 
triggers a number of different disclosures and then a number of different record-keeping requirements associated with those disclosures. So it's a very intricate rule and a lot of kind of A relying on B and B relying on C. Yeah, that makes sense. And it's good for the audience to hear that because people might not realize if they haven't sat down to think about how complex the implementation might be. And they might think, oh, you know, this is something I could sort of plan and execute from start to finish in a couple of months. But I think in the real world, that's probably not the case. And it underscores Alan's point that it's important to have a very thorough, well thought out plan sort of ready in case the rule does go into effect as finalized. Because, you know, the FTC gave a very short implementation period when it finalized the rule, and it might do the same thing again if the Fifth Circuit decides the challenge in the FTC's favor. So everybody needs to be ready for that. Okay. So with that out of the way, let's sort of backtrack and talk about the rule and what it requires. And so, Brooke, let me just turn to you again. Do you mind just giving the audience a little bit of background on how we got to the final rule that was announced earlier this year by the Federal Trade Commission? Yes. Chris, as you mentioned, in about July of 2022, the FTC issued a notice of proposed rulemaking. And in that proposed rulemaking, the FTC outlined much of what we see in the finalized rule. But it's also important to note that the notice of proposed rulemaking, July 2022, that actually had requirements in it that frankly were more onerous than what is in the current rule. And when we looked at that rule and, you know, <laughs> 18 months ago in 2022, the things that we noticed really were kind of regulator whack-a-mole. All of the topics that had consistently been on federal regulators' agendas for years all were here in this rule, whether it's add-on products, whether it's the war on junk fees, so many of the major initiatives from both the FTC and the CFPB were really baked into this rule. Okay. Thanks very much. So it's sort of a little bit of a wish list of an aggregation of different things. And do you mind continuing, Brooke, by just highlighting what are some of the things that are prohibitions in the final version of the rule? In other words, what are dealers not supposed to do after the rule comes into effect? Yeah. As you mentioned, a lot of new major prohibitions in this rule, and some of them are pretty self-explanatory. A lot go to advertising, and some really change the industry. All of the speed disclosures that you would hear at the end of TV or radio advertisements, those are done. Things such as add-on products that have no value. Well, that sounds you know pretty self-explanatory, but once you sort of peel back the layers of the onion, suddenly your dealer is going to be asked to really take a look at every single deal that comes through and ensure that the consumer is getting value for everything that they add on to a retail installment sales contract. So the examples provided by the FTC were things like, you can't charge for nitrogen-filled tires. You can't charge for VIN etching. All of that makes sense. But a lot of the devil is in the details, specifically with gap waivers. And one of the examples that the FTC gave was that dealers are prohibited from selling gap waivers where the consumer's product may not be covered. So if the gap product has an exclusion, for example, a specific model of any sort of vehicle, then you can't sell that gap waiver to a customer who's purchasing that specific vehicle. So that requires 
it puts a pretty big burden on your dealer to know absolutely everything about the workings of their vendors. And so for every gap waiver product that a dealer sells, they have to know absolutely everything about the agreement between the consumer and sort of the gap waiver provider. So it's a big onus on the dealers. Okay. And in addition to the prohibitions, Brooke, that you just mentioned in the rule, I know, Alan, that there are a number of affirmative requirements under the rule. And I think those are also going to be pretty material, both to dealers and finance companies. Would you mind talking a little bit about those to the audience? Absolutely, Chris. I'll start by saying these new affirmative requirements of the rule probably represent the biggest regulatory change impacting automobile dealer activities and motor vehicle sales in America in decades. Uh, these are really, truly fundamental and uh, wide-ranging and burdensome, hence the legal challenges. There's four I want to talk about today. I'll be brief. I'll try to be. One is the offering price. The rule requires dealers to use a standardized formula for coming up with a offering price that would be used in having any kind of conversation with a consumer about the price of a vehicle. The offering price would include the full cash price, excluding only mandatory government fees and taxes, and it must include all required fees and mandatory add-ons other than those government fees and charges. This uh, standardized price needs to be used in the first communication with the consumer about a specific vehicle as a mandatory disclosure. Brooke was talking about that. And then it it's a, it's a price that must be used in advertising and marketing materials. So there's a requirement to use a standard template for coming up with an offering price and these disclosure instances. Second big requirement is that if a monthly payment is ever quoted to a consumer, that monthly payment quote is a trigger term. It triggers additional disclosures. In particular, requires the dealer disclose the total of all payments to be made at a given monthly payment amount. Monthly payment conversations is a big part of automobile sales. Consumers come in wanting to know if they can afford a vehicle. Many consumers translate affordability into the monthly payment. So monthly payment is a fundamental data point that consumers want to know about in the sales process. So dealers now have to, whenever they talk about a monthly payment, need to give not only the monthly payment being proposed, but also the total all payments to be made at that monthly payment amount. The third big affirmative requirement is the area of add-on disclosures. An add-on is a additional good or services, typically uh, viewed as being not mandatory, that is made available to the consumer. The consumer would be purchasing as part of the uh, transaction. So, for example, Brooke was talking about gap waiver products. That would be an add-on. Service plans would be an add-on, as another example. When there's conversations about add-ons that leads to an agreement by the consumer by them, there needs to be what's called a clear, conspicuous disclosure add-on and express informed consent by the consumer to the add-on before they execute paperwork about obligating to buy those products. So there needs to be a disclosure before the consumer is asked to sign a buyer's order or retail installment sales contract that identifies a charge, it gives the amount of the charge, and also gives a comparison of the monthly payment, if it's a finance deal, a difference comparison of the monthly payment with or without the add-on charge, so the consumer can see what impact the add-on charge has on the monthly payment. This is going to require, obviously, developing systems to generate these numbers, changing paperwork in an automobile sale. Probably, for most dealers, is going to involve a new form that will be 
need to be inserted in this process. And then that's a new form to become fundamental to the deal that will have impact, trickle down impacts, as we talk about in a minute, uh, to sales finance companies that take paper rather from the automobile dealers. Fourth requirements are around record keeping, and it's hard to underestimate the significance and burden of the record keeping requirements uh, in the rule. This may you know, turn out to be one of the single biggest new requirements in terms of expense and burden on dealers. All documents required to, to show compliance with the rule or need to be required to be retained for 24 months. There's an open-ended requirement. And then they call out specific things that need to be kept under that. One would be written communications with consumers about a sale, car sale. So if a salesperson is texting with a consumer about or emailing the consumer about a specific vehicle or maybe chatting with them through a website, then all that experience needs to be retained in the document retention. So dealers have to figure out how to do that. There's also a requirement to keep all complaints, you need to keep all advertising and marketing materials. And of course, there's a requirement to keep the deal documents, the written disclosures and consent to the add-on charges and the deal documents such as the buyer's order and retail installment sales contract that memorialize the purchase of the vehicle at a price as well as any add-ons that are being sold. So sort of for the key affirmative requirements, this rule would apply that are in fact largely new. Thanks, Alan. And I think you know some of your comments about those requirements foreshadow the next thing that I was going to ask you to talk about, which is Obviously, the rule is aimed at dealers, but we think there's going to be significant potential impacts on auto finance companies as well. And I wonder if you just take a couple of minutes to outline what some of those possibilities may be once the rule becomes final, if in fact does. So I'd break it into three buckets. One would be regulatory risk. Second would be private litigation risk. And third would be compliance burdens. Probably the one that grabs people's attention here is the risk of regulatory enforcement against the finance company for the sins of the automobile dealers. We have seen how regulators have held finance companies responsible for things that have occurred at the dealership. And to put it simply, regulators seem to be taking a position, and Chris, I expect you have a lot to say about this, that if a specific element of a transaction, like a specific charge that is imposed as part of the, the sales process, finds its way into the finance document, that it becomes illegal and an unfair practice for the finance company to try to collect that sum through the enforcement of the retail installment sales contract. So regulators seem to take a position that they're the lot connecting the chain of logic. One would expect that the regulators will take the position that if the dealer does not comply with the rule, does not sell an add-on product, for example, a way that complies with the rule, that the regulators will take the position to the finance company, they can't collect those items when they enforce a retail and summit sales contract. And if they do collect it, then that's an unfair practice and subject to enforcement action. Well, and not only that, Alan, but they would not be able to collect interest on that portion of the principal amount of the retail installment contract too. So we saw an example of this with the CFPB in the summer of 2023, where the CFPB asserted creatively, I might add, that if a dealer makes a misrepresentation to the finance company about the options on a vehicle, that that necessarily also means that the dealer made a misrepresentation about the options on the vehicle to the customer who bought the vehicle and who saw it with their own eyes. And so that portion of the amount financed in the retail installment contract was, in the words of the CFPB, you know, fraudulently inflated 
And it was a UDAP violation for the finance company to collect that amount or any interest on that amount. And so, you know, the exact sort of chain of argument that you just made with respect to a potential optional product sale, like a gap waiver, for example, that's alleged to be in violation of the FTC rule, the CFPB has already done it in another context just, you know, last year. And so I think that also comes against the backdrop of a very evident desire by the CFPB to have auto finance companies police the conduct of dealers and monitor the conduct of dealers. And with the record retention requirements in the FTC rule, it provides a perfect opportunity, I think, for CFPB supervisory examiners to say to the auto finance company, you know, where is your evidence that you're ensuring dealer compliance with this rule in connection with the deals you're buying? Because how can you be sure that the deal is enforceable and proper unless you collect all this documentation and monitor the dealers? And so I think that's likely what's going to happen from the finance company standpoint. Since you've uh, opened the Pandora's box of compliance, Chris, let's uh, go ahead and drill down on that a moment before we turn to the private litigation risk. One thing that the finance companies need to think about is the deal documents will be changing, that the documents that they're used to receiving from dealers and indirect auto finance operations will be changing. There'll be a new form likely for many dealers that will deal with add-ons. And so what do you do in your compliance systems with these new forms? Do you review them? Do you vouch for their facial regularity, et cetera? So that, that's something that's coming, whether you like it or not. And then the other part of compliance is what new affirmative functionalities do you put into your dealer monitoring compliance systems? So given you know, the possibility, Chris, as you stated, that the regulators basically may have an expectation that the finance companies are going to be there, going to be deputized, you know, going to be deputized by the regulators and force this thing. And what do you do about that? Do you engage in heightened scrutiny of the paperwork as it comes in? Do you sensitize your complaint management system to pick up traces of problems at the dealership with greater alacrity? Do you do some sort of training and or on-site visitation with dealers? I mean, I mean, the option list goes on and on, and the industry's got to find some happy medium place on all that, I believe. Yeah, that all makes sense to me too, Alan. But you mentioned something else, which I think bears discussion, which is private litigation. Now, there's no private right of action under the Federal Trade Commission Act, but I don't think that creative plaintiff's lawyers are going to feel stymied by that. Brooke, do you mind talking to the audience about what some of the private litigation risks might be? for auto finance companies after the rule comes into effect, again, assuming that it does. Absolutely. And just as you mentioned, there is no private right of action in the FTC Act or in the CARS rule. However, <laughs> you know, this is still a UDAP violation. If the CARS rule goes into effect and if a dealer is alleged to have violated it, then that is essentially a UDAP violation under state consumer protection laws. And the sort of attractive uh, portion of state consumer protection laws for plaintiff's lawyers is the ability to recover fees. And what makes it even more sort of complex and unpredictable for auto finance companies is the new sort of state of affairs with the holder rule. Because for years, for years and years, the holder rule had long been found to not sort of incorporate attorney's fees. So sort of the plain language of the holder rule 
the amount that a plaintiff could recover under the holder rule against the auto finance company will be limited to the amounts paid hereunder. So the amount paid under the contract is the limit of the auto finance company's exposure. Well, the FTC really flipped that on its head about a year and a half ago and came out with uh, regulatory guidance that said, well, you know, actually, we had never said that plaintiffs couldn't recover attorney's fees. You know, if a state should have a consumer protection statute and if that statute should provide for attorney's fees, there's nothing in the holder rule that would prevent plaintiffs from recovering attorney's fees from auto finance companies. And that was a complete 180 from sort of bedrock knowledge and jurisprudence about the holder rule. So with that uncertainty, the auto finance companies see the car's rule, there's no private right of action, but there still is this potential of state UDAP causes of action and with that attorney's fees. So suddenly we have you know, burdensome new requirements and prohibitions at the dealer level that really can be enforced against the auto finance company with that sort of, you know, risk multiplier of attorney's fees. Brooke, those are great points. And so I think it really is a good idea, I think, both from the standpoint of regulatory risk and private litigation exposure to do some of the preventative measures that Alan was talking about a few minutes ago, if you're an auto finance company and if this rule comes into play. So I think both of you have shared some really important insights with our audience today. So thank both of you for being on the podcast today. And of course, thanks to our audience for tuning in as well. Don't forget to visit and subscribe to our blogs, consumerfinancialservicesLawMonitor.com and TroutmanPepperFinancialServices.com. And while you're at it, why not head over to Troutman.com and add yourself to our Consumer Financial Services email list? That way we can send you copies of the alerts and advisories that we send out as well as invitations to our industry-only webinars. And don't forget about our handy mobile app. Like I said, it's a great one-stop shop for all of our thought leadership content. Just search for Troutman Pepper in your app store and you're sure to find it. And of course, stay tuned for a great new episode of this podcast every Thursday afternoon. Thank you all for listening. Copyright Troutman Pepper Hamilton Sanders, LLP. These recorded materials are designed for educational purposes only. This podcast is not legal advice and does not create an attorney-client relationship. The views and opinions expressed in this podcast are solely those of the individual participants. Troutman Pepper does not make any representations or warranties, express or implied, regarding the contents of this podcast. Information on previous case results does not guarantee a similar future result. Users of this podcast may save and use the podcast only for personal or other non-commercial educational purposes. No other use, including without limitation, reproduction, retransmission or editing of this podcast may be made without the prior written permission of Troutman Pepper. If you have any questions, please contact us at Troutman.com.